Welcome back to the penultimate episode in our four-part Daughters of Darkness miniseries, Filmmaker Above Suspicion, Sex, Death and Politics in the Cinema of Elio Petri, Episode 3. Today we tackle a double bill and explore two of the director's most potent films, 1970's Oscar-winning Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion, alongside 1971's The Working Class Go to Heaven, aka Luke Lou the Tall. And most importantly, we focus on the common denominator between them, the sublime talent of actor Jean-Marie Volonté, who takes a starring role in both of the films. So join me, Kat Ellinger, and my co-host Sam Deegan as we celebrate Volonté's intensity and passion in two very different roles, both equally powerful in their own way. So welcome back to episode three of our Elio Petri retrospective. And I have on my notes as the beginning of the episode, start by throwing our hats off into the air and screaming. Except I can't scream because I've fainted. (laughs) (laughs) I full on fainted and I need some sort of smelling salts. And I accidentally let Sam in charge of editing the document and she put hearts around his name. (laughs) Wherever it appears. (laughs) I'm not sorry. (laughs) So if I get distracted or off course, that's why. Because there's just so many hearts. (laughs) Because there are fucking hearts everywhere. (laughs) Okay, well, I think I need to explain. So I love a lot of people that we've talked about through these episodes, but usually that love is in sort of a, I really appreciate them in an artistic way. However, my love for John Maria Volante is not an artistic love. It's that, but it's a lot more than that. And I just, which I don't get. I'm <sighs> sorry. He's not Marcello. Well, whatever. You can have Marcello. <laughs> I'll take John Maria any day. I don't know. I mean, I love him in a respect way because he is such a good actor. And I think he's a, a lot more intense than Marcello. Um, shoot me for saying this. I love Marcello, but Marcello is Marcello. Um, whereas Volante <laughs> I <feel like> is... <laughs> I think Marcello is Marcello is a quote that could go on the back of his biography or something. <laughs> Oh, yeah, he is. He's always Marcello in everything, isn't he? He's just like, Marcello. He's like, Adalgisa. <laughs> Adalgisa. <laughs> He's always being hounded by women or sort of, you know, it's sort of a shit, but not really because he's got a cheeky <laughs> smile. But Volante <laughs> is like this just <sighs> Jesus Christ. And no one does intense like him. Not even Franco Nero, who we finished off the last episode talking about A Quiet Place in the Country again because... He's quite intense, but just nowhere near the level that you see in these two films that we're about to talk about. Uh, The latter being 
my favourite Petri, actually. Really? It is. And when we get to talk about uh, all the working class go to heaven, then then I'll I'll tell you why. But it is, yeah, it's totally my favourite. But no, probably not for the reasons it's your favourite. <laughs> <laughs> you mean you didn't turn it on and then just want to set your clothes on fire? No, not really. <laughs> well, like I said, my mind was set Marcello. on fire. No, okay. Well, no, there is enough that to too. have a fight over it. You know, no, that's. And- that's probably for the best. And we won't break the Jamaria rosary either, arguing over it, and all the little beads right. would snap off. <laughs> so if for some reason this is your first of the Petri episodes that you're listening to, in the last episode I begged and pleaded for someone to make me a rosary where each bead is a different picture of John Maria. And <laughs> I really need this to happen. I myself... I'm not craft oriented in any way, but I will gladly pay you or write something for you or come to your house and sing you a song off key, possibly. (laughs) (laughs) But I think I deserve to have this rosary because I'm pretty sure that there's no one on earth who is a bigger Jean Maria fan than than I am. You need that. I think we should kickstart it if no one's going to (laughs) come forward. Yes. And if someone comes forward, I will somehow managed to mention the rosary in every episode going forward and you won't set their house on fire i will not i mean unless <laughs> if if they call Zhuavsky a misogynist i'll set like their lawn on fire <laughs> so so there's that um as far as tone tonal sort of quality goes to these films they're quite sort of heavy on the philosophy and the themes and everything and here we are just being so frivolous which is like (laughs) not like us at all is it no we're never frivolous we never have (laughs) laughing fits we never swoon (laughs) over anyone (laughs) although i think up until this point most of my swooning has been for rosalba neri it has i mean you know we should do like an end of year sort of little <laughs> montage of all the people we've swooned over and Jean-Louis Trintignant but my, my love for him is definitely an artistic oh. respect sort of love oh why how can you he's so beautiful I I just I guess like I I love him but not not in a Jean-Maria way which is an exclusive love <laughs> it, it really is an exclusive love I, I mean who else can make their hair flip around like that <laughs> what the fuck <laughs> so if you've never seen any of these films or any of Petri and Jean Maria's films together he always has something fucking going on with his hair in every film and the crazier he gets the wilder his hair gets <laughs> in the best possible way and there's a little documentary that we'll mention with working class where where one of his his co-stars mentions his hair actually (laughs) (laughs) and i saw that earlier today and i'd never even thought about his hair and now it's too i think about it all the time (laughs) (laughs) there's so many ways i could answer that but let's just (laughs) move on to the to the plot before we we sort of completely lose it to my favorite of all petri's films which is Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion from 1970. And I think this is his most famous film, for sure. 
Definitely. It won the Oscar for Best Foreign Film. As um, it should have. Even when he jumps a red light, the police salute. We are the guardians of law and order in our time. His voice is the law. He is a citizen above suspicion. And this citizen above suspicion commits murder. How are you going to kill me this time? I'm going to cut your throat. My fingerprints all over the apartment. Not to sidetrack the investigation. 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 But to prove. But to prove. But to prove. But to prove that I am above suspicion. It's one of those things that it's a given that it won the Oscar, given that it is such an amazing film. I talk about favourite Petries, but I love them all for different reasons there's just yeah they're all wonderful they are all wonderful and it just i just don't really i mean he did fall out of favor with critics after this and i just don't get why you know given that he did win the oscar and given that he did you know 10th victim was a big cult hit as well in america which i don't think we actually mentioned when we covered it on the last episode so it's just amazing really that the rest of his work gets so ignored um it's insane to me it's it's also insane because i think the next couple like this film and the next couple of films he has a real partnership with john maria in a way that i think makes the films stronger i mean you have a director and an actor who are both really brilliant and talented and their politics really lined up and they didn't always agree about everything but i think the respect that they had for each other turned out some phenomenal films. Well, I mentioned on the last episode that there was a a short interview on the Criterion release of this. Um, and with Elio Petri, it was a French interview, and he gets asked about his relationship with Jean-Maria. And he talks about him is he liked his his actors to have intelligence and he liked his actors to challenge him and challenge his decisions. And he liked, you know, it to be a collaborative process that went back and forth. And that's something that he got with John Maria, who took his roles very seriously. He was sort of a method actor, very intense. So there was a lot of creative conflict between the two that translates to some of Petri's best work. Definitely. No, and I think that you can you can sense that intelligence throughout all their work together. And that that documentary, there's this really sweet part where he comes up as he does a lot. And I forget who mentions him, but what the guy says is basically, you know, Jean Maria was the kind of person who would talk about art and politics and literature the way other people would talk about football. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure that informs my obsession a little bit. <laughs> just just a touch. And he would have been really intense and his hair would have been really intense as well. Exactly. 
But there is such an intensity here. And I remember the first time I saw this film, I was just like, Jesus Christ, you know, this is just fucking amazing. I didn't know it was like the cherry on the top of the cake and there was just so much more amazing. But I think these two films performance-wise is some of his best work because of Jean Maria and because he just goes so all out on both of them. He's just really in the fucking zone. It's just so good. And in this one, he has this amazing balance between... In a lot of scenes, he's very controlled and restrained and he expresses that sort of ultimate dominance and power that makes a lot of the other characters sort of cower when they're around him well he's just and, it's his eyes and the way like yes. his hair like will be out of place there's something unhinged about him there's something there just are, <laughs> there are these great <laughs> there are these great <laughs> moments and you have to watch the film really closely and kind of be a crazy person to notice them but there, there are these scenes where in one shot, you'll see him. And so in this film, unlike any of the other ones, his hair is sort of slicked back. But because it's him, he can't control it the whole time. So there are these scenes where his hair starts to get out of control. The camera will cut away and it will cut back and his hair will be back slicked down. And I don't know why, but I love that so much. See, I didn't notice this because I... <laughs> Because you're not a crazy person? No. Yeah. yeah. I will say, though, I will say, before we hit record, before we go on to just talking about the plot, we'll just give a brief thing and then we'll actually break the plot down in with, in with the themes. Um, but before we press record, I started singing this theme tune to Sam. I'm not going to replicate that on air. You should. <laughs> no. I'm not going to do that. But I did say no. <laughs> <laughs> not gonna do that but i did Now's say that our i chance to turn it into a musical podcast <laughs> <laughs> i did i don't want to drive them away but i did sort of come out with this spot we were getting ready and i did come out with a spontaneous burst of the soundtrack um we'll play a clip here of the soundtrack so i don't have to ruin it for everybody <laughs> i did say this soundtrack is being on i use spotify um for my sins and i have some like playlists on there and this is on one of my writing playlist and has been for a couple of years it's just like a random soundtracks one but i love it because it's on at the beginning and it's like very rousing and it's like getting ready to write and so this was one of his collaborations with ennio morricone and we should have mentioned in quiet place for the country although i think yes, we did well, on we, the art jalo episode we did that he, we did talk he did about the it score there. for that which is a really strange disturbing score but, but glorious the, but his score that he does for Petri here is one of his best scores that he ever did. I love it so much. And there was a great little anecdote that Morricone, because he worked with Petri a few times, um, and he did this like amazing anecdote about because apparently Elio Petri was a bit of a joker. I think Sam <laughs> said earlier or in the last episode that it's like this weird little humour, and a lot of these films probably sound quite serious, but... You do get these moments of like black comedy or absurd comedy, and in this especially, there's there's parts yeah, of this so that many. really make me laugh, even though you're not quite sure whether you're supposed to be <laughs> laughing. But, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. So and apparently Florinda Balkan, who's also in this, um, loved working with Petri. She just thought he apparently just laughed and joked on set, and he was just you know really put her at ease. But um, 
Ennio Morricone, so he, before he scored the film, he saw the finished film and Elio Petri had added some other, I think it might have been Morricone's own music, but it's what he described as mystery music. <laughs> and he he added it and, and watched it with Morricone and it made Morricone like really angry because the music was just wrong <laughs> and 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 apparently all the way through Petri was just going this music it's just so wonderful isn't it it's just so beautiful <laughs> and Morricone was so angry that he went off and he wrote this score and then he came back and, and obviously Petri had set him up and that's what he wanted to do and he said I'm so sorry <laughs> <laughs> and I just love that because it's just like you know It's so him. Also, it's we should so say happy him. birthday to Morricone. Uh, I think by the time you guys hear this episode, his birthday will be a few a few weeks ago. Yeah, but... I think this is probably going to be airing around Christmas or towards Christmas now. But well, Merry Christmas, Morricone. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so good. I mean, just the whole the way the music just really makes it. Um, it really does the way it's used. It's sort of in the whole performance of Jean Maria. So no. before we yeah, get into so, the themes, just a quick sort of. So briefly, it's it's basically about this police inspector played by Jean Maria, who it was the head of homicide, but is promoted to the political division and. Just as he's promoted, he murders his mistress, who's played by Fleur de Balkin, and sort of covers up the crime, but not really. The main purpose of the crime is not to get away with it, but to prove that he is, as the title suggests, a citizen above suspicion, and that no matter what he does, he will never be found guilty. And while this works, it doesn't quite work in the way he expected. And like a lot of other Petri's protagonists, he it sort of becomes all about his existential crisis and his descent into madness. And it's so Kafka as well, and absurd it's, in parts. Yes. It's just so... <laughs> glorious. It's so glorious, so amazing. It's... um. It's a film that we talked about when we talked about. So we talked about a quiet place in the country, and we still kill the old way, which were films that used and Assassino as well. Films that use sort of Italian thriller or giallo or sort or of in, in it, yeah, yeah, sort of these sort of genre themes, but use them in a in a much deeper way on a very philosophical level to look at power structures, to look at sort of individual psyches and to explore these things and so in a way sort of mimics an italian crime thriller or uh, sort of thing and it's almost like a role reversal of we still kill the old way in that jan marie is back now not as the innocent but he's on the inside of this corrupt corrupt system which is great because he you see a completely different side to him in this um and see his versatility but it's funny because he's still he's still sort of on the outside. It's like he is in the center of this world, but he's apart from it. He's not I I don't know. He just he feels so separate and so alienated. Yeah, like all of Petri's protagonists. We've mentioned it on the last episode, we mentioned it in the first episode. 
Um, even though he's at the centre of this sort of police structure and he's this admired sort of superior, you get, like Sam said earlier, you get this feeling that people are just scared of him and they just go along with him and he's not particularly liked and he's a bit of an outsider and you get the idea that he probably doesn't get invited back for drinks with the rest of the team um and there's a lot of sort of camaraderie in these scenes where men are marching around in groups they all seem to move en masse but he's always sort of almost separate to that and one of the early scenes after he goes and he kills florinda balkan is that he goes augusta yeah he goes to this retirement party and everyone's laughing. He's making these jokes, but you almost get this feeling like Joe Pesci in The Goodfellas. Like yes. everyone's sort of like everyone knows he could snap. And so they're laughing, but in a sort of really strange way that feels like they feel they have to. So they're a bit scared. Of, like even his boss sort of cowers his eyes at him. And you wonder, well, you know. There's, there's this great scene at the party where. The guy who uh, I also I don't think I said this, but he isn't given a name. Everybody just refers to him as Il Dottore, which is like the doctor or it's just sort of an official title. But nobody gets names in this apart from Florinda Balkan, who's Augusta. All the yeah. all the main the male characters are just named like the police chief, the doctor. It's almost like they don't even need a name because they're just part of this system, which is because there's only political and no personal, which is part of what makes it f- like it, it. He uses it in a very comic way, like subtle, but it's that element of absurdity really, really comes through. But so at this. At the retirement party, the guy who's taking over as chief of homicide tries to kind of ingratiate himself with John Maria and says all these things like he's got big shoes to fill. And, you know, there's something like only three homicides that went unsolved during John Maria's reign. And John Maria, the whole time smiling and nodding, responds to this by telling the guy not to be such an ass kisser in front of everyone (laughs) and nobody knows what to say and they all just kind of smile and looked panicked and try to like talk over it oh (laughs) it's brilliant Il carnevale è finito. Confermato, Andiamo. via del Tempio 1! Confermato, via del Tempio 1! Mangani, panonze, andiamo! Io vi raggiungo! And then he makes these sort of big jokes. They're talking about how criminals are always saying how innocent they are. And he and he makes a joke about it and says, there's only one guilty person here and that's me. And they're all sort of laughing, not knowing that he's just killed his girlfriend. <laughs> Well, it's like like you were saying, it's sort of a riff on Las Asino, which that's yet another theme, is that nobody really believes what the accused Marcello has to say because there's this assumption that even if you're suspected of being a criminal, you're probably guilty of something. Well, all the criminals are sort of based by type and they've got this amazing scene where he goes into the archives where everyone's filed. Oh, so This good. huge archive. And people are filed like by their religion, by their politics. And, you know, they're like, here we've got the socialists, here we've got the communists, here we've got search and search, here are the priests. And it's all like everybody's labelled and categorised and every 
anybody is assumed guilty apart from Jean Maria, who is actually guilty, which is the sort of the the rub, the twist, the the thing that he is above suspicion because he is the system, and anyone who isn't part of that is is immediately seen as guilty. And it's almost like in <laughs> yeah. La, La Assassina, which really pissed the authorities off and was cut and caused absolute outrage, was because they didn't like the way that Petri portrayed the police in that because they were sort of didn't really that in that Marcello's accused of murder. They don't really care whether he's killed his girlfriend or not. They just don't like him for what he represents. And so there's this sort of bullying by the police. And in this, it's like even more it's sort of even more stated it's like a fascist state well it is the police march around in these sort of units and the way they question people is like you know like a torture thing where they make people drink salt water and they beat the crap out of them and they keep them in these rooms and pick on them and bully them and they can just arrest somebody for anything and then just sort of force a confession out of them they're not interested whether somebody did it or not and so there's a lot no, of that in all. it and jan maria is part of that system um so but there's this that like petri uses that to elicit suspense and sometimes terror but he often uses it as a comic device. Like there's this great scene where one of the crime scene investigators comes to him sort of for an evidence report because he's kind of overseeing the case, even though he's left the homicide squad and the crime scene investigator says to him, you know, we found your fingerprints literally everywhere. And they go into this room with these giant pictures of fingerprints. And he's like, we found your prints on a wine glass on a table in the shower on this piece of clothing on the dresser. But every time he lists off a fingerprint he gives an explanation for why he thinks it's there like <laughs> oh it's your last day and you're so important you 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 it's your right to touch things and investigate and the only reason that your fingerprints are on things is because you were doing your job and you were trying to solve the crime and it's like what <laughs> oh and it's great because all the while through it like John Maria's doing this like these bizarre facial contortions <laughs> like he can't believe that this guy is explaining away it's his so crime it's so good so, <laughs> it seems like he starts to it seems like he's going to start to sweat a little bit and at first he like on the floor and this guy <laughs> yeah. this forensics guy's like are you okay don't you feel very well because he just he just has enough of it he just like faints on the floor <laughs> it's so ridiculous and he it- can no longer control himself Everything about this film is ridiculous, though, in the most amazing way. It's so Kafka, it's so absurd, it's so darkly comic. Um, we find out that so we've got we've got the police sort of elements there, and then you've got the student unrest theme that comes in because this was made in 1970, which was, you know, 1969 was a very difficult period for Italy. It was, you know, you'd had student protests and you'd had what they called the hot autumn where everything came to the head with the workers and the students rioting. And it was, you know, a, a lot of violence and a lot of terrorism in, in the society. And it's sort of, you see this in Petri's earlier films. I think I said when we talked about La Asesino's first film, like even from that point, you see this tension brewing and brewing and brewing and every film that goes along gets more explicit. And here it's like really indulges in those things properly. No, it's 
It's amazing. And I, I actually, um, there's this really great essay on terrorism in the period from Richard Drake that I think sort of concisely explains the situation. And I mean, at least as an American, we didn't learn anything about this in, in school. And so I, I think people sort of know that there was unrest in the 60s and 70s, but not to the degree of what was actually happening in, in Italy. And so he says, no other industrialized country in the contemporary world had experienced anything at all like Italy's 15 year long affliction with terrorism. More than 1,200 people died or suffered grievous injury from this violence, which from 1969 to 1984 included thousands of terrorist attacks. Dozens of groups on the left and the right were involved. Their victims included policemen, politicians, lawyers, judges, university professors, union leaders, industrialists, and unclassified bystanders. Bystanders. The left aspired to bring communist revolution to Italy. The goal of overturning the capitalist status quo, perceived, perceived by the left to be controlled locally by the Christian Democrats and globally by American imperialism, united terrorists of tactically and temperamentally diverse backgrounds. More mystery exists about the true goal of the radical right, but the antipathy of neo-fascists towards contemporary Italian society could hardly have been less implacable than that of the communist left. So I think the way he translates that is there's violence everywhere. There's not just violence with the police, there's violence with these writing students. And you've got that whole thing in there that, you know, everything is corrupt, everybody is corrupt. You know, society is just yes. corrupt and running wild. The police are running wild, the students are running wild, the workers are running wild, and everyone's very primitive and violent, which... You know, so there's just even when you've got the scenes with Jean Maria and his whole little thing that's going on in the middle that he's killed this woman, outside of what's happening with him is this exterior violence that's con that's constant. It's like all the way through the film that bombs going of off. Every character people basically rioting, people fighting, people beating each other up, and it just it runs through the entire film to like a ludicrous degree and we talked about this with Jan show because he loved the writing students and all this in his well, film he but this experienced is... it too I mean he was there yeah so he he sort of did this but Petri sort of takes that and just takes it one step further and makes it into a sort of farce on operatic proportions to some degree because you've got this guy in the middle of it going on about a tie in a going on plaiting these clues you know while people are trying to blow the police station up and it becomes really hilarious at times no it's it's amazing because you're just I like think... what the hell is going on <laughs> <laughs> Vedete, dottore, nemmeno la galera riunisce. In due ore si sono già spaccati in quattro gruppetti. È come una reazione a catena. Per fortuna sono divisi, se no per noi sarebbe dura. Voglio interrogare Antonio Pace, è qualificato, ma prima portami quello vicino a lui. Lo vedi, quello che strilla tanto con i baffetti. Piano, ecco che siete! I think it's the, best, the single best film that sort of sums up not only that period in Italian life, which... I mean, the late 60s and early 70s became known as the years of lead because, like you were saying, on both sides, there were constant bombings, shootings, assassinations, kidnappings. I mean, later, 
a couple years after this film was made, a major politician, like basically the leader of Italy was, was kidnapped and murdered. And even while this film was in production, there was a bombing uh, in the Piazza Fontana that a lot of people, when, when this came out, a lot of people assumed that the film was about that, even though I think Petri said it, it wasn't specifically. I mean, the film as well was a, a, immensely popular in Rome when it opened and the Italians absolutely loved it and they didn't, they fell out of favour with him out of this and his next film didn't do so well. But this was apparently the first midnight showing of a film in Rome because people were just queuing around the block to see it endlessly and so they just kept the showings going so this was like the first midnight showing because everyone wanted to see it and everybody loved it um and it's a shame that that celebration didn't carry on but um i know i think because there was a lot of leftist sort of sentiment and the next film isn't so clear-cut and whereas this sort of challenges what was seen as very corrupt institutions at the time and it does it quite head-on and and it you know he's not he doesn't mince his words does Petri he just shows all police and all government is completely corrupt and I think that hit a note with with people more than when he tackles the workers in his next film I think some people took that personally I think he also does what he always does and nobody's black and white on the moral scale. So it's like, because he shows you all of the, the leftist terrorism and the student unrest, he kind of gives you an explanation for why the police act the way that they do. And I don't think you ever really, yeah, yeah. because everything's out of control, they've become more controlling to try and get control of this. And it's got to the point in this film where it's like the reason why Jean-Maria is so empowered and he becomes so out of control because he has all this power is because the police, they like tapping everyone's films. They've got phones. They've got everybody on file. They watch everybody. Everything is controlled. Everything is clamped down on. And you've got these huge armies of police that have have got you know they seem to even sort of be more powerful than the government in some of the scenes where they tell there's a scene where he goes to this sort of politician or somebody who manages the budgets and he's like i want more money i want more men i need this i need that it's the chief chief. so he just goes to him and he just rocks up and sits down in a chair and basically just tells him what he wants he wants to pay informants he wants you know to rent property and he wants to do this and that and this guy's just absolutely looks terrified of him but <laughs> as most but people says do yes yeah and says yes and it's like that you know they've got this power i think for petri and he said this in in relation to this film directly is he was very interested in how power corrupts and how you know i think he said if you follow if you give anybody power they will abuse it. And he said, you could follow, just follow a traffic cop round for the day and he will abuse his power. And so this is the central oh, three about how Jean-Marie Volante is this chief of police or chief of, you know, his political division abuses that power. But he becomes like 
Elio Petri described it as a sickness. So he becomes ill because he yeah. has too much power. And he even makes references to this in the thing, you know, I've, I've had too much power for too long and it's sort of well, no, ruptured there's, there's my brain scene, and, you know. There's this scene where even the, the chief himself says that the prolonged use of power is an occupational disease and it just transforms you. I love the themes of patriarchy in this as well. You've got this whole thing, and this ties into his relationship with Florinda Balkan. Uh, yes. She is a typical Petri lady and harks back very much to the lady from La Assassina, Adalgisa um, as Augusta, who's a woman of means. She's married to a gay man who can't be openly gay. And you wonder what he he's accused of sort of being involved with her because it, it furthers his career. So she's got this gay husband and she's got a lot of money. And in her time, so because she's bored, she <laughs> the way she meets Jan Maria is by great. <laughs> stalking him in weird phone calls where she basically belittles him and says these things to him and says, well, you know, and he's like, who are you? And she's like, well, if you're such a good cop, come and find me. So she taunts it's amazing. him. She taunts <laughs> him until he comes to her. So you've got this patriarchal theme in that relationship because he talks to her about the power of the police and about how sort of anybody who's not in the police or anybody who hasn't got this power as a child and they're treated as a child by the state and he in his relationship he tries to belittle her there's like this whole power dynamic going on which is just fucking amazing it's even better than quiet place and it's so erotic it's so erotic because she, what she wants him to do is to attack her and he photographs her in the murder scenes and they play out rape fantasies and they, and it's yeah. all to do, and he is asserting his dominance, but you get the idea at the beginning that she just thinks it's this game. She's always laughing and that really pisses him off. Io t'ammazzerei con le mie mani. Bel coraggio. Sei tu che fai le indagini? Chi ti scoprirebbe? Well, she's always... Oh, and I don't think we said this, but so in the very beginning of the film, he kills her. And before he kills her, she says, how are you going to kill me, kill me today? And he says, I'm going to cut your throat. And then he does it. And you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. But through, through flashbacks, she appears and their their sort of relationship becomes clear that way. It's absolutely brilliant. She gives him this sort of token power and it's all part of her game. And it's you get the feeling that not just he's not just doing this is uh he's not just doing this as a as sort of experiment to see if he can be above suspicion, but it's almost his way of getting back at her because she mocks him all the time. She chastises him, she rings him up and calls him says things to him like, You're typical Italian, you're too hairy, you need to lose weight. And she yeah. says all these like horrible things to him and provokes and him. And he's into... not that hairy. No. <laughs> Apart from the hair on his head. <laughs> and she provokes him into this violence. It's like it's like um it's like a game for her but he he sort of you know he's an important man or he feels he's an important man he's part of this well, he is. this system and she 
undermines that in a way and and so he, at every chance she gets which is brilliant <laughs> but he comes out with this big speech about how everybody apart from you know the people in the system are children all criminals are children and they just get reduced to being children and he's their father and 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 then i think this is interposed with a a because he's having a flashback which is quite surreal the film in that way that it merges past and present yeah it cuts back and forth he's constantly watching her husband who they've arrested as a suspect be beaten by the police and crying and you know and he sort of says you know they all cry and they all cry and i am their father and you know they have to confess to me but she's not having any of that at all no <laughs> and there's another well, great and i think yeah go on. Oh, sorry go ahead there's another great scene that comes that that plays on this scene where he's he's like marcello when we talked about la assassino where he wants to be the important one and he wants to have the power but she actually has the power over him and he starts to he realizes that she's seeing this student who lives in the same building and he gets quite jealous and he goes storming yeah that's there. the tipping point that's the tipping point and he's been tapping her phone and stuff and he just doesn't like it and he goes around and he's like well i don't mind you sleeping with these men but i have to know about it and we have to be partners in this you know and you can only do this if i say and she just mocks him and he's like you know well i'm in charge here and she just beats the crap out of him and starts calling him a bambino and saying you're just a child he's there <laughs> crying <laughs> like a little Anna, baby it's, it's such a weird i mean their relationship is definitely very sadomasochistic but it's this whole dominance and humiliation exchange that just it's like you think it starts out at ex, at its most extreme when he kills her but it really gets more extreme through the flashbacks well, he gets more, but she's egging him on the whole time. Like, she loves to be humiliated. And the more he responds to that, the more into it she's getting and the more glee yeah. you see on her face. She's great. And this is one of my favorite of her roles. I, I think it might be the best. It's her, I'll tell you what, and, I, and, and this comes up later with Daria Nicolodi in All Property is No Longer a Theft. Um, the role that Florinda Balkan plays for... Petri, this is like her sexiest role. She's so sexy yes. in this and so carnal. And her costume. She's so beautiful. And he did the same for Daria in a later film. Whereas Argento, and me and Sam have talked about this between ourselves, had Angrily. this awful <laughs> knack of just casting Daria Nicolodi as this like dowdy, asexual. Like in fucking Tenebrae. Yeah, she's, just weird hair. She's like sort of a prim, sexless assistant. Uh, even, even in Deep Red, where she's flirtatious and she's kind of the girl Friday, she's so awkward. And it's like it undermines her sexiness by putting her with this really sort of repressed protagonist who just kind of responds to her against his own will. But here, uh, well, with, with Petri, I think they're both allowed the full expression. Yeah, we'll talk about that in the next episode because it is a glorious Vanessa Redgrave role. too. And Vanessa Redgrave. And Florinda Balkan, we covered um, her, her um, 
Footprints in the Moon in one of our art jallo and talked about how, I mean, in Elizabeth in Woman's Skin, she's quite sexy, but she also had this sort of very cold, very masculine. In Footprints, she's sort of very dowdy. She wears these sort of masculine clothes and she was an actress that could look quite masculine. Um, well, even in Don't Torture a Duckling, yeah, she's... she's you know, she's like the wild witchy. There's something witchy, kind of hard about her. Yeah, the wild witchy woman, and she's sort of a bit feral in that. But in this, she's just fucking amazing. Like you wouldn't think she was the same actress. She just looks so. I don't know. It's Glorious. Like she's completely transformed. And as I just said earlier, she loved working on the film. And when she first saw the script, she thought it ran, you know, just like a straight up thriller. But she said when she arrived on the set and saw his visuals in this beautiful room with these black silk sheets and, you know, and and when they actually started to play it out, she realized, actually, no, this isn't a normal thriller. This is just very surreal. It's very dreamlike. And she, she loved playing the part. I think that shows in her role because she's just... She's just so good in this. She's wonderful. I, it's a shame that they didn't team up more throughout both their careers. Well, the energy between those two is just brilliant. It's so intense. Yeah, they're wonderful. Because Balkan, she was, we discussed this in the art jalo, because of her masculine sort of characteristics, she got a lot of very good meaty character roles, but she didn't really get the glamour, the sexual roles that a lot of the other genre actresses got. And in this, she gets both. You know, she gets the sex and the glamour, but she also gets the meaty character thing. And with, a, with the pair of them are really weighty sort of actors. So put them head to head and their scenes are just amazing. Mind-blowing. Yeah. yeah. I, and I think, I think that dynamic between the two of them, without two actors like that to play off each other, the film's sadomasochistic themes wouldn't come through as strongly and i think petri really really sort of ties that in effortlessly to the themes of fascism like in this interview he says it is from the mechanism of sadomasochism that authoritarianism draws its strength of this sadomasochism, latent homosexuality is only a symptom. It is also clear that the superego wants to make love to the ego and dominate it. And their games are all about who can dominate who. Yeah. But you never doubt that she's the one in charge. She's totally in charge until she gets her throat stiff. But it almost but even seems after... like that's what she was angling yeah, for. Yeah, well, she, she's the one who gives him the idea. So they're sort of going along in a car and she's telling him to run red lights because he's a cop, he can do anything. And she's like, you're a cop, you can do anything, you know. And he's like, don't push me, don't tempt me, you know. But she, she pushes him on, she pushes him on. It's like this sort of rule-breaking thing. She can't thing. stop. No, and then... You know, they're on a beach and he's filming his murder scenes where she's been supposed to, she's in a bikini and she's supposed to be being chased out of the sea. And she in in you know, they still have this chat about how he could kill someone and get away with it. And she almost it's like she even though even that isn't his decision. She he's no, sort it's of hers. goaded into it and it's all part of her game, which is just brilliant. That's, yeah, that's I think what is part of what makes this so amazing not just in terms of the performances but from the script i mean he he has this woman who's 
portrayed like as we've been discussing so far like a lot of his women are where she's manipulative and she cares about wealth and power and but she's also this strange agent of chaos where she refuses to be controlled and she refuses to give into the system so she sort of subverts it from within by changing not even changing him but by bringing out this side of him that had been latent for his whole life presumably well yeah because they don't talk about him having any other relationships or anything he just gets locked into this strange sort of he's not like the other playboy characters that petri would come up with like the ones that marcello paid he's just this no and it's kind of like an the sort of dark side to his character and we still kill the old way yeah you know it's there but it comes out full blown in this <laughs> it's so glorious salvo randoni is back as well oh it is so good his role in this is so good so he plays a plumber which is which harks back to his previous role in a little salute almost to himself just this random guy who because jan maria has decided to go around planting these clues because when the police you know, he, he just basically leaves his prints everywhere, his shoe prints everywhere, and they, they won't accept that he did it. So they get these other suspects in. And he he's not going to play the game. So he keeps trying to hand himself to the police. And one of these absurd scenes he does it is, so he meets Salvo in the street. He's just this complete random that he meets. He says, what do you do? And he's like, I'm a plumber. And he's like, there's there's a tie. There was a thread from a tie found planted under Augusta's fingernail, planted there from this blue tie. <laughs> and I love this. When the tie first comes up with this colleague, this guy says, well, we've traced the tie to a tie shop. Um, and there were only two sold. And one was to Augusta because she'd given him this tie. So the other one was obviously yours. So we've ruled you out. <laughs> So it's obviously this other person. And she obviously gave this tie to the real murderer and it's just so bizarre. So he meets he meets Randoni in the street and he says, go into the shop and buy 25 of these blue ties. And they have this really strange, really intense interaction where he gets him to buy the ties and then basically tells him he's a murderer. He's like, what? Well, first he <laughs> pretends to be first. And again, this is back to that whole theme of performance and acting a role where he pretends to be the director of a theater troupe and he wants to buy the ties for a theatrical <laughs> production, but he needs someone else to do it for him because he doesn't want anyone in the shop to recognize him. It's, it's so f- hilarious <laughs> and absurd. It, it's one of the most memorable scenes in the whole movie. Scusami, la farebbe una cortesia. Prego. No, no, dico, dovrebbe entrare lì dentro e comprarmi tutte le cravatte azzurre. Le vede quelle lì che sono in vetrina? Ma scusi, perché non ci va lei a comprarsi? No, se ci vado io, quelli mi credono un concorrente, se ne approfittano. Mi faccio il piacere. Ma ci vorranno un sacco di soldi per comprare eh, quanto ci vorranno? 50-60 lire. Vabbè, non so, veda lei. Ma lei viene a curiosità, perché devono essere tutte quelle azzurre? Perché... Io sono impresario teatrale, sei da un spettacolo. Il titolo della rivista è 50 cravatte azzurre per 50 bambolò. Bravo. Mi faccio il piacere, io l'aspetto laggiù. 
Dove? Sotto il colonnato. Then when he comes out with the ties, he starts like becoming really threatening and uh, towards this older guy and starts going this well, poor innocent helpful man i know he's like i want you to take those ties to the police station and you're going to tell them that the murderer of this woman gave them to you and like <laughs> it just sort of devolves into this like really from fast to this like really claustrophobic and threatening scene where this guy's just trying to get away with the ties and he's absolutely fucking terrified and he's like i want you to remember me i want you to look at my face i want you to look (laughs) i want you to go in and i want you to describe me and this poor guy does as he's told and then encounters him in the police station and shits himself and says, I changed my, I was mistaken, it, you know, and he, he just won't do it's it. It's not him. <laughs> <laughs> you just feel so sorry for him because you think, give the guy a break, you know, he just doesn't, he becomes yet another pawn in this like game where it, it's getting more and more frustrating for Jean-Marie because the cops just will not accept it's him. It's so good. <laughs> Even though they're smacked in the face from the evidence, from <laughs> it's like from every possible angle. And yeah, I, I don't know. I think that also is sort of the turning point of the film when Randoni's character points him out and is then horribly abused by all the other cops, including the new head of homicide, the the ass kisser that we mentioned earlier. And it's John Maria who has to save him from being the fall guy. And he doesn't save him out of the goodness of his heart. He saves him because much like Augusta's seemingly perverse desire to be murdered, he wants to be found guilty. And the more difficult it is for anyone to accuse him, it's like he becomes more and more determined. And more and more mad. And the hair. It just... <laughs> it's a work of art, that hair in that film. I don't know who the hair who the hairstylist was, but God bless them. Volante was back again, being just as intense Yay. and just as fucking crazy, but just for completely different reasons. And he and, and just as beautiful and, and just as part of the system. But this time, for the working class goes to heaven, aka Lulu the Tall, which is my favourite Petri film. It's just so it's fucking brilliant, and I just. I asked. I I spent a couple of years like recommending it to people and going, "This is made slightly my favourite film," and then they don't they don't share that, and it's always a disappointment. <laughs> they just think, "What is this?" It has got another amazing and um, Morricone score. Another amazing oh, score. Oh, the score is so good. Like these two scores, I just I think they're hard to top. And, and I mean. As everyone who remotely likes Italian films knows, Marconi is amazing, but these two are just so perfect.
It is really good. Um, it's so. It's it's called Lulu the Tall because it's based on this character called Lulu Massa, who Jean Maria Volante plays. And Lulu's the best worker in the factory, and his output puts his fellow workers to shame. He's like a man and a machine, and this causes friction with his colleagues who are frustrated that his numbers are making factory bosses insist they double their own, so they work on piecework. And unrepentant, he continues until he loses a finger to the machine. And what ensues is an existential crisis to end all crisis, even by Petri's proportions. <laughs> as Lulu gets involved with striking workers, student activists, and ultimately realises no matter how hard he tries to escape the system, even if he breaks down the wall, there's no heaven, there's nothing at all. Ah. Oh. <laughs> I think the reason that I love this film so much, it's the one that feels more personal to me. And I mentioned in the introduction into the first episode, the whole working class scenes and the class themes in Petri appeal to me on a personal level. I think this one especially, because I grew up in Britain in the 70s and 80s where, you know, there was a lot of friction here with the unions, with the factories striking. And although it wasn't as violent as in Italy or Spain, say. I mean, we did have terrorism, though. We had the IRA, but it was a time that there was a great sort of unrest. And my dad worked in a factory. My dad was a my dad's a blues musician, so he suffers for his art. He, he's one of those people like me who just has menial jobs to support his, his labour of love. But he's a factory man. He was like a union person and he was he was diehard labor and so he was i was sort of brought up in that environment you know um and there was a lot of things going on in the 80s like the miners strikes and stuff and my dad was always very political and very vocal about it and he went out in his band and sort of played to support the miners he was striking and so i grew up in that environment where people workers were on strike and you know and my grandfather worked for the national railway and he was a sort of union man and he was a a sort of worker so to me this whole theme of people being forced into menial work and being forced into this economic system is just you know it just feels so personal to me I think that's what strikes a chord with me yeah and it it definitely does have that way more personal feeling and and I think it's a film that really expresses it's almost like Petri took his leftist politics and then took a critical lens to it and said, okay, what's not only what's wrong with the worker system, but what's wrong with the system of leftist protesters? How do they feed into that? How do they make it better? How do they make it worse? And it's a really honest film. When I was a kid, I remember, you know, in the late seventies and that, and and growing up through the 70s we'd have all these sort of strikes where the electric would just go off and you know the unions had a lot of power and thatcher took that away ultimately which isn't necessarily a good thing but it did get into this situation where the unions and the strikers sort of almost had too much power where it became this big sort of friction between the workers and the 
and the industrialists or the system and so that creates friction and he explores that brilliantly here and it also gives you that whole idea of that economic boom where all this industry appeared post-war in Italy and all these factories appeared and that changed Italian life where people just became slaves to these factories because they would just produce more, produce yeah. more, produce more and people just became machines and there was and and they created more things for people to want and to buy and that's another main theme in this um and in this lifestyle where people just were were just machines they were just valued by how many pieces of like i don't, I don't even know what they make <laughs> they're like little just pieces of metal that they make they don't even know what they're making i think that's one of the things that comes up and so there's a downside to that where people are exploited and the way he tackles it, Volante didn't actually saw the script and didn't want to do this film. I'm not sure why he did, but because he was left wing, he saw it as anti-communist in a way and he was quite annoyed by it. Um, well, it is. But he still I did mean, it. And I think he channels that rage quite great. In it. Like, it's, it's in his performance, this anger. And I think some of that came from the material. Oh, it's wonderful. <laughs> but I, I think that's why I loved this so much is because... So we, we spoke about this in the first episode, but I love Pasolini. He's one of my favorite directors. And he sort of tackled this theme of man as machine and this sort of system of progress and economic boom as a system that's fundamentally exploitative of everyone except for a very small group of people. But Pasolini did it in this really sort of distant intellectual way that was not particularly accessible to, you know, the everyday person who would be going to the theater whereas this film is personal and it is accessible and it's about these it's almost i don't want to say it's anti-intellectual but it's it it's does sort go of aggressively into that, it goes into that territory though definitely with the we'll get to does. it in a bit but the the sort of conclusion about the students is almost well and I, and so it's like i i get why it bothered volante but i think it's petri's way of saying i was part of that system that system being you know the communist party i was part of that system and it doesn't work either and it's another way to exploit people and i i just think there's something so brilliant in how he makes it not about the intellectual and not about ideas or concepts, but he makes it very visceral and physical and even sexual. Which he makes it about Lulu, brilliant. who's this guy at the centre of it all, this poor guy that you, you, you sort of, you know, he just can't escape this sort of impoverished existence, really. He's like bullied by his workers and then he, you know, and then later on he's sort of used as an icon and he just seems to be used by everybody. Um, yeah. And he's conscious of that and that's what's driving him mad because he's just totally conscious of what's happening. He just can't see a way out. And I think that's what I connect to, just being working class, that whole thing of, you know, when you are working class. I don't give a shit what anybody says. If you are working class, you are primed from education level to go into menial work 
and to not aspire. And he is a reflection of that. And he's an extremely human character. It's, I think this is why this is my favourite film over. I love Citizen, but this one feels his performance even is more personal here. Like, oh, definitely. Citizen's more absurd and it's more intellectual in that way, whereas this one's just very down to earth. Um, which is why it, it didn't go down too well. Where critics hated it, which is awful because this, and we'll explore this in the next is episode, is what set Petri on this sort of spiral then where he lost favour with the critics and he, and he sort of became disillusioned, which is really sad because he was such a talented person but just didn't get that in his time when he deserved it. Um, which makes no sense. Like... Well, I suppose I, it I was dangerous I... and he was almost too realistic in a way and he hit home too too much because they loved it when he was sort of poking holes at the police and the establishment. But when he started to look at people and, you know, about look at the other side of the coin, you know, they didn't quite like that as much because it wasn't, <laughs> you know, the done thing. But Petri was nothing but honest in all of his work. I think it, that's there's a real honesty there. He doesn't sugarcoat yeah. anything, you know, even if he goes abstract and absurd, there's no sugarcoating. It's just straight down the line. Pure honesty. Yeah. Well, I I think that the same sort of thing to a different degree, but the same sort of thing happened to Fassbender 10 years later. I mean, when he was, when he started making films that were critical of the left, people were really kind of like third generation. People were really taken aback by that. Because he portrays them as being as absurd and as corruptible as people in positions of power. And I, I think that's what this film does. I mean, the the protesters that Lulu ultimately, well, for a while sides with, they lose him his job. They lose him his relationship. It's like... And they don't care about for, him. Yeah. They don't care about him. They're responsible for everything being taken away, but they really don't care. And they don't and have they... an alternative. They don't have anything else to offer, just ideas. And it's like... Well, and I, I think the the point that struck me the most is that they're all, and, and that I think makes this film especially relevant today, is that they're all so fucking entitled when when he loses his job and he shows up and says, okay, what do we do now? Like, I have to eat. How do I eat? And they they have this sort of flippant response like, oh, you'll find somewhere to sleep. Oh, food's around. And the only people who say that are people who have never been actually hungry. And it's gutting, like, that scene. It's so gutting. It is. And you think, and they're all at university. You know they're going to go on. But for Lulu, there's nothing. And everything's there's paid nothing. for. There's nothing for him, you know. He, he so he has to try and get his job back, which is just terrible. Um, it's a it was a very fractious shoot as well because it was shot partly. So the scenes in his apartment was was uh, shot in on a soundstage in Chinichita, but the factory set actually was a real factory, and they got real factory workers and, and real which union is amazing. people to sort of be the extras. Um, so you had and a lot of the film you've got so people coming in and out of a factory with this these riots going on and all those scenes were quite violent <laughs> there's some there's some scenes like this guy they get the the 
the workers go on strike and they get the scabs in, as we called them in Britain, the people to come in and replace them. And this poor guy gets like pulled off the bus by the strikers and just looks terrified. <laughs> And you get the idea that he actually was terrified. Because <laughs> there yeah. didn't seem to be much control. I think there was a the documentary on the making of there's like a little story about how an actual fight broke out and poor Yeah poor John Maria was like really upset that he'd accidentally hit someone with a megaphone. <laughs> was so upset and the guy was like no it's it's fine like i've got some bruises i'll live <laughs> and there was that documentary is great it is by the really way. great and i don't know I, it was just something i encountered and i don't know where it's from but but power all power to the person for uploading that it's almost been from an italian release i think so it's just fan subbed but it's so good it's like a 50 minute documentary on the the factory in navarro and this um you know it just gives some background about how you had these just like the government you had these mismanaged factories that were owned by these greedy sort of industrialists who didn't manage their money very well didn't pay their taxes didn't look after their workers and exploited them and it was all about how this town where the film was shot all the people relied on the factory, but they were also abused by the factory and how that was the sort of hub of their community and it got ripped apart by this corruption. And there was people on there, who, they, they were extras in the film, but they were actually just everyday working class guys sort of talking about, you know, since the strikes and since the unions and everything, what their life has been like. It was more than just, when I got hold of it, I thought it was just a making of, but it's not. It's so much more. It's so much more. It's like this very sort of almost like Petri. It's like the story of the film, but also the story of the people who who was the film was sort of based on. It's really good. Um, well, and it gives it this, it, like when you watch it and when you hear their story, it gives it this sort of interesting neorealist element when you think back about how he incorporated these people's real story and a lot of those real people into his film in such an effortless way. Like, I don't think it would ever occur to you. Like, sure, this could be based on real life, but I mean, no, and I, think I certainly Newley had was no idea. actually based on a real life guy as well. So the character of Lulu is this guy who's just so conscientious at his job. He's just so obsessed with his job and being good at his job and doing his piecework and being a good provider. And then he just gets his finger hacked off by a machine and then just realizes, you know, actually no one gives a shit. <laughs> no, it's, you know, I, and that whole theme of him being this best worker is as he sets out, those are the scenes that I love the most with him because he becomes like, he becomes so it starts off he's in the factory the people are striking and then we meet lulu who he's faster than anybody else in the factory and his and the other workers hate him because they're on piecework and he's developed this method where he's in rhythm with the machine 
It's quite bizarre how it's filmed because it's, it's very it's, bizarre. It's like he's and weirdly sexual. And weirdly, well, <laughs> I can see why you think that. He's all gyrating in in rhythm and, with the machine. <laughs> okay, I feel like we need to say that when he gets the machine like working at maximum capacity and he's all gyrating it it like it leaves off this fluid this like milky fluid that spurts in his face and gets in his hair and okay so it's not just me because i definitely so in 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 the interview i mentioned earlier petri says it is clear that all the repressions of our childhood are used by society to make us into instruments of production. When a worker is a slave to the machine, his sexuality is being employed in the rhythm of production. And come on, it's not just me. Like, he, he's basically getting splooged in the face by this machine. I think it does, it brings into this sort of sexual element as well. So you've got this. So he's this man, and he's and he and he talks about the machine as if it's a body part as well, which is quite he strange. Does. And he's doing this thing where he's talking about, you know, he's moving <laughs> it's in Tetsuo of the early years, <laughs> <laughs> and he's sort of showing off to the other workers that why they're so slow because he sort of developed this thing where he actually gets involved with the machine, which is ultimately why he loses his fucking finger because the others aren't that stupid. But you, because he, well, he's also trying to show them up when he loses his yeah, finger. And he gets overconfident. <laughs> so he he you've also got this thing where he's in this relationship with this woman, uh, Lydia, who's his sort of girlfriend, and they don't actually have sex because he's impotent because he uses all his energy in the factory. And so they don't sleep Although, together. Or well, she tries, okay, so, but he's well, too tired. It seems like it seems like there's a scene, and maybe I misinterpreted this, but it seems like there's so there's a scene where they're lying early in the film where they're lying in bed at night and she wants to have sex. And like you said, he gives her all these excuses. He says he's too tired from working. And he says that she has to catch him in the morning because that's when he has his sexual energy. And he starts to whine and complain in a way that Marcello also does yeah. in Petri's films that I love so much. But so he like rolls over and he's kind of crying and he's being a fucking baby. And she sort of calms him down. And it seems like it turns into an oral sex scene. But I maybe I was imagining that. It was that, all sex or... to you. Just admit it. Hey, it's John Maria. <laughs> what do you want? <laughs> So Lydia replayed, Lydia's played by Mariangela Maletto and that actual scene that you're talking about when she's in bed, that was her, she went in, I saw an interview with her where she talked about how she thought she was going in for a, like an audition and she plays out this scene and she was quite intimidated by the fact that it was John Maria and they get yeah. into this bed and she thought it was her audition and they film this scene and then Petri says cut and she's like, well, how did I do? And he's like, well, you're in the film like that was <laughs> that was the scene and it just went on from there so she was like well it, <laughs> it's it seems like it ends with with her so it's like he's making these faces and then she disappears underneath the covers that's what you want to mean, happen no i think it is that <laughs> either one is fine but it is amazing that that was somebody's like surprise first scene <laughs> yeah and but he does have this awkward relationship with sex 
um in it he does it's so it's almost it's just as tense as we still kill the old way and investigations of a citizen of uh, above suspicion but in a different way it's like they're all these sort of really tense anxious uncomfortable scenes but fantastic well, you've got if you look at his relationships to the women in his life. So he's got Lydia, who's his girlfriend, but he's actually married to this other woman, and he's got a son who lives with one of the other factory workers. And he has there's a there's a part when he loses his finger and he goes around to see his real son, because Lydia, his girlfriend's got this little boy called Arturo, or Arturo. Who calls him dad? He calls him dad, but I think I don't think he is his dad. So no, he's not. No, so his actual son calls another guy dad. So he's he's like emasculated and cuckolded by these female characters, which is very petry. So he goes in to see his sort of ex-wife to get some sympathy, and he and he doesn't get it. And his son's calling another man dad, and he tries to force himself on her at one point, which is quite bizarre. <laughs> it's quite irate about it. He's got Lydia, his girlfriend, who's a hairdresser and she just doesn't really give a shit about his factory work and she just wants stuff. And No, but they seem to get along pretty well for the first half of the film. They do, but she's a bit dismissive. He sort of, you get the idea that he constantly wants this sympathy or some sort of accolade or for her to sing roll out the barrels when he arrives or something because he's just so good. Yes, no, it's it's exactly <laughs> like Lasacino. It's he he wants to be treated like he's this sort of golden gift to the world and she's just like, yeah, whatever. And she's just sort of really annoyed about the fact that he messes up the front room by dropping cigarette ash on the floor and you know, tells him where to watch TV and you know, but then there's this other girl at the factory who's like this Sicilian oh. who's like he he sort of preys on in a strange sort of aggressive yeah. way. She's a forklift it's like, driver and he It's like sort of friendly and at first it feels like maybe it's camaraderie, but then you realize like, no, this is sexual harassment straight up but then they go on but to, she laughs she laughs but she goes on to have sex with him in the car and it's got to be one of the most awkward sex scenes i've ever seen i mean it's pretty much a lot like having sex in a car to be honest <laughs> and they and apparently the documentary that we just mentioned so they talked to her the actress who, who plays the young girl who sort of says on there that Petri gave them opposing instructions so they'd complete, be completely out of sync. That's awesome. Which is so good because <laughs> they're sort of fiddling that. around, the gear sticks in the way, and that like it's cold and it's like it's not very nice and it's not very. And she's supposed to be a virgin, and she sort of he 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 gets on top of her for about ten seconds, and she's like, and he's like, well, what did you think? And she's like, well, it hurt. You know, and she's so well, no, not even there's impressed. This, <laughs> there's this horrible. So most of most of the scene, and I think this is a brilliant way to do it. But most of the scene, the camera is inside the car and is up in either his face or her face as they're like fumbling around, and they don't go in the back seat. They're in the front seat of the car. <laughs> And trying to take their clothes off and like there's no sort of seduction or foreplay whatsoever. And then when they're actually having sex, there's this long shot of the car just moving back and forth. And she lets out this scream of obvious pain. <laughs> oh, oh. 
Ah, ah, come sono contento. Ah. Ecco, finito. Finito, adesso sei finito. And two seconds later, it's done. <laughs> and then the camera's back in the car. It, it's so, br so brilliant. You get the, his attitude to sex as well. It's like, oh, well, we've had sex now, but that's what it is. It's like just getting it out of the way. You know, he's not well, emotionally he connected he... to it in any way. He <laughs> no, just feels like... It's awful. Because they, they storm out of the factory. This is what leads to it. And they've got nothing else to do. So they're like, well, what should we do for the afternoon? Well, let's just go and fuck in the car. It's all a bit like that. And there's no connection there. And she just looks a bit bewildered. But I think it's a brilliant well, scene. It's it's awful because she 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 says to him, like you were saying, is that it? And he says, yeah, but women don't feel anything the first time. And then he says to her, and I don't know what he meant by this. I don't know if this is a weird translation thing because he, he and in Italian, he says the number 30. So I don't think it's a mistranslation, but he says it like, he says something like it, it takes up to 30. And I wasn't sure if he was saying when you're 30 years old, you'll start to enjoy sex. But I think he meant you have to have sex 30 times to enjoy it. And then a, a second later, she says, well, what about love? And his response is so gutting. He, he says something like, like, well, you just experienced it. And then when you leave, that's all there is. Which is... It's like, oh, <laughs> go back to your machines, please. <laughs> it, it, with his machines as well, I think that's sort of... It, the machines become his it, code for his, like, virility. And when he loses his finger and he sort of becomes disillusioned, he sort of just gives up. Um, but... <laughs> well, there's that great scene where he has to go to, like this factory doctor oh. and it's <laughs> it's set up very much like a set piece from investigations of a citizen yeah. above suspicion where he's in this room stuff yes with these weird and they're not i feel like if this was a film made now they would be some sort of like rorschach drawings but they're these images and he's supposed to tell the psychologist or the doctor or whoever the guy is what he sees and he just literally says what they are but they launch into this conversation about how his finger was was damaged and the doctor says well don't you think that could be a stand-in for some sort of castration fear and it's it just it's like everybody hits him over the head with it and he can't see it but he gets even before his finger comes off he sort of gets ribbed by his colleagues who sort of you know cast aspersions over his relationship and his manliness and you know tried him over his relationship with lydia and him not being a man um one of the factory workers is the marvellous Flavio Bucci, who I fucking love. He's in Night Train Murders and he comes up. Yes, in he's so good. He's no longer a theft later on. He's one of the factory workers. Um, And then the other familiar face is Salvo. Again, is back. He's so oh, good in this. Militina. And his name is insane. <laughs> <laughs> I want that to be my name. <laughs> It's such a good name, and he just says it over and over again and talks. So it's almost like Adel Jesus yeah, from, Ridadina, from Ridadina. <laughs> And he's always like talking about him to the other factory workers, and the new ones don't really know who he's on about. But this old guy, he's in an asylum. He worked in this factory all his life, and then he just went fucking mad. 
So Lulu goes to visit him when he thinks he's losing the plot and asks him how he knew he was going mad because he's got these weird little ticks like arranging the salt and pepper. Yes, I love those these scenes. These really weird little ticks that he does. And Willity said, well, it all starts, you know, things start to annoy you and, like, you know, the salt and pepper have to be in a certain order and he starts to think... <laughs> Well, and there's there's a great parallel because when he goes to see the doctor, the doctor gets in the middle of their conversation, the doctor gets all fucking bent out of shape because in this in this open drawer, all these pens are going in different directions and he freaks out about it and has to straighten out the pens. I was like, that's my life. There it is. <laughs> I'm about to lose my mind, clearly. Oh, but that is just, the overriding thing is this poor guy, Lulu, in an existential crisis. And he goes into this asylum and you get the idea... So it's sort of saying that you can escape the factory, but you just can't escape the system because if if you escape the factory, then you end up there. Or, you know, it's like there's no escape at all. and it, There's nothing there's else. There's no sort of... The people in the asylum are just like the people in the factory. So it's like so depressing. In, I'm laughing and saying that, but... <laughs> <laughs> laughing in lieu of I'm, crying. I'm laughing because it's so amazing. And Savo Randoni is just so good in it. It's this mental case who just offers up these sort of soul-crushing pearls of wisdom. So, yes, <laughs> it's like, it's, well, it's again back to that whole patriarchal theme where he's obviously a father figure, but the most pessimistic, nihilistic father figure you could find. Well, Lulu kind of goes there for some comfort or some, you know, to maybe be told, you know. Some direction, And, and yeah. he's just told, you know, well, you're just going to go mad and you're going to end up here. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> just embrace it. <laughs> and that's where the end of the film goes. It's just so, oh, and he gets all the, so he gets to Pete and he says, oh, well, if you come back, bring some, you know, bring some tools so I can escape. And there's this really sad scene where he sort of riles up the other inmates to start trying to break down the wall. And they're all sort of banging their fifths and acting crazy. And Lulu's in the middle of it just as crazy. There's lots of that in it. Just these little set pieces where... And they're all beautiful. He's becoming so unhinged. Um, one of the scenes that always sticks out in my mind in this is when... So he gets involved with the strike and he becomes the poster boy, you know, the man who lost his finger to piecework. And he can still do the piecework. He goes back to the family, but uh, the factory. Goes back to the factory, but he's very disengaged and he's so slow. So that's why they send him to a psychologist. And he's like... It's not that I can't do it. He demonstrates he can he can go back to his previous form. It's that I don't want to. So they think, oh, well, he's he's gone mad. He's broken. Yeah. <laughs> so the strikers sort of get hold of him like a poster boy and hold him up, and that's how he loses his his job. And his wife, or his, his, his mistress, Lydia, just has enough when she comes back and there's these bloody student protesters in their house. There's a guy in her bed. <laughs> you can sort and they're of like, see hey. why. She's carried on going to work and she's just like, what the fuck is going on? Like, 
Well, they eat they eat all the eggs, and Lulu's like, "Can you go across the street and borrow some eggs?" And that's when she just has. She enough. just picks up the TV and goes, and he's like, "Please, come back. <laughs> I love that she. Oh. I love that. I love that she takes the TV. It, it's like the he's like no he. I don't even think he says at first. I don't think he says please come back. He says no, leave the TV. I know, and then he realizes <laughs> she's going, and it's like. He's like, I'll buy you a fur coat. (laughs) She just goes. She does come back, though. I think it's like you said with the first episode with the teacher, Viggy Viggy Varno, and the wife in that. He's like this woman who, she wants all this nice stuff and she's bought into that sort of consumerist dream, but she's also just trying to get on, trying to get on with things, and she's got this sort of man baby who's joined up with these students who are all like 20 <laughs> years younger than him and they're all like dossing around he in their a man, baby. <laughs> and she's like you know what the hell is going on you know i'm i'm off i've just had enough but she does come back so she obviously loves him um well i see i don't know that i saw it that way i think i saw it as the cycle repeating itself so it's he loses his job oh, you pessimist. all the students <laughs> Well, uh, that's how I saw it. So it, like you were saying, the students come into his house, she leaves. And because she leaves, they're afraid she's going to call the police. So they leave. So he's left with nothing. But this is the scene and... that I mean. This is the one that always stood out in my mind, stands out in my mind, is he's left in this flat. And there's all this stuff in it, like this big Donald Duck inflatable oh, yes. and this stuff. And he's looking around the room and he's valuing his life, his the objects in the room, with how long it took him to earn them. To earn them. So he's like painting of a clown, 10 hours, and saying how many pieces of, of work he had to it's put out. It's a beautiful and scene. And he's so gutting, and he's like, this, this is this, this many hours, this is, you know, and he's like, you know, why have I got all this shit? And then he starts beating the crap out of the Donald Duck inflatable. <laughs> <laughs> It's so sad, but it's, I mean, that's also kind of why I saw it. Not as, not as she really loves him, but as he's her best alternative, just like returning to his normal life is his best alternative. So he gets his job back, she comes back, and the cycle just repeats itself again, and there's no way to break out of it. And I I think his monologue at the end where he explains this dream that he has kind of underlines that oh it's just so crushing he and the camera work (laughs) so he basically the 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 punchline is that he has this dream that he breaks through this war with militina um and he you know because he thinks there's heaven on the other side for the workers and he smashes down this wall and all he sees on the other side is fog and he's there and all the people in the factory were like was i there what was i doing and he's telling this story and there actually isn't a punchline because there's nothing there because there's nothing there (laughs) and the camera as as he's at work telling this story the camera starts to go fucking bananas and you just know like well he is going to turn out like Militina and go totally nuts. Poor Ludo. Final note on this is when it was actually screened, it was screened in protest at the Venice Film Festival, so it was shown in an open-air square 
where Petri and all the actors and all these people attended, but apparently the critics really attacked it. Um, they didn't like it at all, and this is where... Because they're assholes. Well, they are assholes, because it's a fucking masterpiece. Um, but he was there and sort of absorbed that, and he didn't think much of critics anyway, and so he carried on doing his thing, but it's it's really sad that it went that way. Um, and when we get to the next episodes, the final episode, you know, those the last three films where he sort of no longer had that critical acclaim, but all of those films are just as potent. Is all They're all as potent in their own right, I think. No, they definitely are. And the only thing sadder than the fact that critics didn't take him seriously is that we can't just continue talking about John Maria into affinity. And his hair. <laughs> and his majestic hair, which I don't think we said in this episode. Hair. It's it's the complete opposite of his hair in investigation, but it's it's equally untamable. It's just it's really all over curly. The place. It's like this weird curly mop, isn't it? That goes Yes, I love it. More crazed as he does. It's quite a thing, actually. I did note this is the one that I did notice the hair in. Well, we can't all be Marcello smoothing our hair with a candle. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Daughters of Darkness, and tune back in three weeks for the fourth and final episode in our Elio Petri series. I also wanted to mention, once again, the ongoing Italian cinema season happening over at Diabolique, which is beginning to wind to a close but will continue for a few more weeks. Look for everything from essays and interviews to film and book reviews and more. Kat, is there anything you wanted to mention? I just wanted to thank all our listeners and supporters who've helped make the last year as we've developed this podcast into one of the most rewarding and fun. I'll promise now that in the very near future we will be returning to the celebration of artistic bush shots. We haven't quite finished with Petri yet, but when we do, we'll have something that echoes the sentiments of our very first episodes lined up on the slate. Don't forget to check out pre-orders for our upcoming print issue of Diabolique magazine, which is due out this spring. We have an amazing issue planned and we can't wait to share it with you all. And finally, I just wanted to wish everyone a happy new year and thank you for listening. Once again, thanks so much for listening and please let us know what you think over on Facebook or iTunes.